Hey everybody, today's guest is Sam Reed, keyboardist and backing vocalist for the New Market Canada rock band, Glass Tiger. Together we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind their breakout smash hit single, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, taken from their 1986 debut album, The Thin Red Line. Sam was gracious enough to send me the working demo of the song, all the way through to the finished demo. And I gotta say, the evolution was impressive, from the standpoint that the song really didn't change too much from the initial concept. Producer Jim Valance co-wrote the track with Sam and vocalist Alan Frew, and it's hard to believe there's really only two chord progressions in the whole track, but it's how they're interweave with the lyrics and instrumentation that makes it all come together. The song was an integral part to the band securing a deal with Capitol Records, who upon hearing the demo, knew they had a monster hit on their hands. Oh, and it didn't hurt that one of the biggest stars of the mid-80s, Brian Adams, lended his voice to the recording. For all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, Sam, how's it going? Very good, Chris. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I, I got to tell you, I've been very excited for this episode, and I loved connecting the dots on this one. There are so <laughs> many cool players uh, within this song. Uh, everyone from you know Jim Valance. Uh, for the listeners, Jim is best known as the songwriting partner of Brian Adams. He's also written songs for Bonnie Raitt, Aerosmith, Rod Stewart, uh, you name it. He's a, a well-known songwriter. Uh, those Brian Adams hits like Heaven, Summer of 69, and Run to You, he had a, a co-write with those. And he was the producer of The Thin Red Line, which is uh, the album that had Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, the song we're going to break down today. So how did this happen with Jim Valance? Because you got hooked up with him, I believe, before you got your deal with Capital, correct? Actually, no. We, we got signed first, um, but the record company felt we needed one or two more songs to round out what we had to make the record. So they sent us uh, out to meet Jim uh, with the hopes that we would come up with a couple of things. So uh, it wasn't supposed to be a production thing. It was more just go to see him as a songwriter. He certainly had the reputation of having a, a, just a couple of hits under his belt. <laughs> so we got sent to Vancouver. It was my first time on an airplane. And that grew into a production thing with Jim. But it started off as a songwriting thing with him. Okay, so the demo that you were kind enough to send to me, thank you, by the way, it's so cool. This demo is awesome. It has just like the kind of beginnings of the keyboard parts that you were laying down. It's very raw. And then you get into the actual demo a little later on into the recording. I love the evolution. So that initial, I don't know, minute or so on there, when it's just kind of keyboard and you're kind of humming the melody there and stuff, is that what attracted Jim's ears?
basically the first, when we walked in the door, uh, the first thing that Jim, his approach, of course, he doesn't know us, so we don't know what kind of a gentleman he is and how this chemistry is going to work. We don't know anything. Yeah. And uh, his first question out of the gate was, hey, what are you guys listening to? And we're like, oh, well, Tears for Fears. I love, uh, you know, we were like rhyming off stuff. And and as we're talking to him, he's going through a drawer of albums. And just to get a feel, he's like, well, let's listen to some of those things. Is that what you love? And I said, yeah, I love Tears for Fears. I love uh, Depeche Mode. I love. Uh... So we started listening to some of those things. And that uh, everybody wants to rule the world is a shuffle. said to Jim I love that shuffle feel and his his answer was you know we haven't had a shuffle in a while let's let's go for a shuffle and that's what led us down the road to the shuffle that is awesome and I'll <laughs> tell you this song has that that same type of swing and swagger that everybody wants to rule the world has it's so danceable if something gets me moving I'm not a dancer and I'm sitting here I'm telling you I listened to this song a million times the past couple of days combing through it and it just every time it gets me moving it's got such a great groove to it shuffle is a very unique thing and, and again you know like I said uh, you know with Jim it, it's like he's he's trying to think When's the last time, other than uh, uh, Tears for Fears, when's the last time we heard a big shuffle on the radio? And it's like, yeah, it's time for another one of those. So that's, you know, and of course that was an influence and uh, and that led us down the path of that little groove that you hear is basically Jim firing up the Lindrum in a shuffle pattern and then we're just vamping to it. And um, back then in those days, I'm dating myself a little bit because we use cassette tapes. Um, oh yeah, we ran a cassette tape live in the studio all day long, like just putting keep putting blank tapes in, uh, just because sometimes when you're writing, you get off track. You know, you start on something, you get a groove going, and then you might get sidetracked, or you might take it a little bit further on the left than you should have. You know, so sometimes if you burn out doing that, it's nice to go back to an earlier part of the day when you were grooving on it and say, did we lose something there because it was good then. And so Jim always had the habit of running these work tapes. So those demos and all of that is live as it's happening, basically, because we ran live tapes at the same time. Right. And you mentioned the Lynn drum machine. Was that what actually uh, made it to the record? It sounds like a live drummer, but it's hard to tell. We wrote it with the Lynn drum, but Jim Valance is an awesome drummer, too. Like, he's an incredible drummer. So he had in his house, in his house studio where we were working, he had a kit already mic'd up that he just left there. So before we left there, the demo that you that I sent you is actually Jim playing drums. Oh, wow. And then the album, as it's released, the master, was was the live drums. It was a live drum kit. So it started with Lindrum, came live with Jim Valance, and then live with our drummer. It's great, though, because, yeah, it sounded like a live drummer to me, but there's parts where the fills almost sound like they were copied from what was programmed. It gives it that, that I'll, I'll call it the 80s feel, but it's great. So if you were if you were to listen to, and I've heard many uh, of the Brian Adams uh, demos with Jim, if you listen to the demos that the two of them worked on and wrote together, it's exactly like a Brian Adams album. Every fill, every... 
you know, like Jim is meticulous with this stuff. And, uh, you know, the feel and the, and the fills and all that stuff, that's very much Jim Valance. And, you know, it, the rule is if it's not broken, don't fix it. Yeah, well, the initial idea on that demo, it, it's almost identical lyrically and the arrangement down to the key changes at the end. Of course, there was no horns on the demo no. that you sent me. No, no live horns, but the key changes, everything. I was like, wow. When this was going down, did you know you had something on your hands? Because you guys didn't have any track record. This was your first album. You didn't fail on your first album or have a huge success. This was the first. Did you know you had something? Well, you know, we, we were really young in the game then. And we had to basically, I can remember driving back to the airport. Jim dropped us off and we had the working cassette in the car on the way back to the airport. And... I remember like looking at his body language to find out whether he, you know, did he really enjoy the fact that we were writing with him or, you know, he's like, you can't drop these guys off fast enough or what. And, and they snap in his fingers. And I, I just said to him in the car, I said, is it okay, Jim? And, and he just looked at me and said, oh yeah, this, this is good. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I remember I rushed home and I said to my mom, Jim Valance says it's good. You know, I can remember saying to my parents, like, you know, I, we had no idea. The record company flipped, though. Really? Yeah, Capitol Records, when we brought, well, on that first day, we wrote Don't Forget Me, and we wrote Someday, all in the same afternoon. And when we gave that back to Dean, uh, Dean Cameron at Capitol Records, he lost his shit. He's like, oh, my God, guys. It's exactly what we needed for the record. That's great. Now, was this Capital EMI Canada, or was this Capital America you were dealing with? This is Capital EMI Canada. And then Manhattan Records then picked it up from there. Okay, because you got to remember back then, as you know, for the listeners, you know, it was kind of two different worlds. You could get signed in Canada and not, maybe not get signed in the States and, and vice versa. It was very strange back then. Yeah, you, you, you either got an international deal, which included the U.S., or you just got a, a domestic deal, which is just Canada. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times, if it you know went gangbusters in Canada, you get picked up in, in other territories. But uh, in, in this case, it sounds like everything kind of came together for you guys based on, on on this song in particular. Oh yeah, for sure. This definitely opened some doors. And at the time, um, uh, Capital EMI had a new label in the U.S. at the time, Manhattan Records, and they they had a bunch of labels like they had Blues and they had I think Bobby McFerrin and they had some other artists like that. But they didn't have a pop band on the roster. So the timing of us coming along and that song coming along was fit perfect with uh, Jack Satter at Manhattan. He's like, we're going to run with this. And they did such a great job marketing that in the U.S. for us. And that's great. Well, like I said at the top, you know, I, I loved connecting the dots here. Just so many players from my childhood. I was one of those guys that read every liner note. I, I memorized everything. And, you know, the backing vocals on, on this record, Mark LaFrance. And Mark sang on just about every hair metal record I, I grew up listening to. Yeah. You know, all those Loverboy records and everything. And Lisa Dalbello, which, did you know Lisa at all? Yeah, well, and Jim produced one of Lisa's albums. So that, okay. that's where we got to meet Lisa. Um, and we've been friends ever since. And uh, But that came through the Jim Valance connection because he uh, he loved working with Lisa. And um, 
he had produced one of her solo albums, so we, he knew he knew what she could sing like. That's so cool because she had a song called "Gonna Get Close to You" yeah. that was covered by Queensrÿche, and that's where I had first heard the song and traced it back to that. Of course, one of the production assistants on the record was Randy Staub, which he was Bob Rock's you know right hand man. Uh, you know, so th- this this whole uh, Canadian connection is really cool for me to to see here, and I could go on and on. I, I have to say, as a kid. And I was wondering why. I'm like, wait a second, they're Canadian. I always thought and assumed you were an English band or a band from the UK, which <laughs> kind of makes sense now because Alan Frew, your lead singer, is Scottish and Canadian. He still has a very pronounced uh, Scottish accent. Very much so. And uh, in the early days, we were, uh, you know, I think when you're when you're an un- unknown band and you release stuff, the, the immediate thing is people will try to compare you to something they know. And uh, we used to get, oh, they sound a little bit like UT, or they sound a little bit like big country, you know, and we definitely had a little tinge of, of uh, you know, rightfully so. I mean, I, you know, I'm a first generation Canadian with Irish background. Alan's right off the boat from Scotland, but we all grew up here in Canada and that's so there's very close ties to uh, England and Ireland uh, for sure in Scotland. That's very cool. And I, I have to, I have to say, total props for you guys still playing the songs in the original key a lot of the older acts just don't do it and i was i was i'm so impressed by that i think it's alan's uh point of pride you know because because we're obviously we're aware of, of a lot of artists that you know and some if you have to do it you have to do it but um he's very proud of himself when he, and often on stage you'll look back at me after he hits a note and the audience won't see it but you look at me going hey not bad hey not bad so he's uh, he's quite happy when he hits and, he, and then he'll say to me, why did, I, why did I fucking write these songs in such a high key? <laughs> we wrote them when we were 24, Alan. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I, I totally love, love that you do that. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I hate my ear. I feel like it's a blessing and a curse because I go see bands and I'm like, oh, it's dropped a key. I can hear it. You know, right. most, most people yeah. can. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're talking some nerd stuff right now. But I love that you guys do that. I want to jump into the track right now, if, if we can. Yeah. The song's four minutes and eight seconds. The intro is this nice little drum fill, followed by a quick row of the guitar and bass. Straight into drums, guitars, bass, keyboards, shakers I'm hearing, and horns playing over the pre-chorus chord progression. It's so catchy that that chord progression in and of itself is in this song five times. There's something about that ascending chord progression that is so cool. Um, That's followed by four bars of the verse progression without vocals, drums, keyboards, bass, and guitar is playing a great arpeggiated part there and the, it, it sounds almost uh chorusy like with this shimmer on it i love i love the tone on that guitar there rockman yeah it's rockman, rockman huh rockman that is so great <laughs> well Halfway through here, there's also one of the first hooks in the song. It's that guitar part that goes, no, 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 right. you know, and that's in there a lot. And it's it's in here in the intro and, it, and it's great. And then we get into verse one and, and 
I don't consider this whole part the verse. I, I'm calling the first two lines the verse and the second three lines the pre-chorus. You take my breath away. Oh, 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 oh. Love thinks it's here to stay. Oh, 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 oh. There's still so much for me to do, and I can't stop loving you. Oh, can this be true? <laughs> well, you know, Alan is the, uh, he's the, what they call the company scribe uh, with, with the lyrics and that. And, you know, you have to wind back in time to we were in our 20s. Actually, one of the comments our manager made is that he felt like it had a, because of the harmonies in the verse, he felt it had a bit of an Everly Brothers kind of uh, vibe. Oh, wow. You know, in cool. the second verse, when they do, when the, the lead vocal in the verse has a harmony that follows it, just like the Everly Brothers used to do, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it had that, a bit of a throwback to that. And that's, you know, the, the lyrics are obviously very, very light, but they're meant to be. And it's just a really uplifting, uh, you know, uplifting lyric. And, and it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Sometimes, you know, the less is more kind of rule applies, you know, and that's that's certainly the direction here. And, you know, I can't think of the song having anything. It's got to have an up-tempo vibe about it, you know? Yeah, and not taking anything away lyrically here, but it's this melody. The <laughs> melody is just gold. If you listen to the demo, now the one thing that everybody writes songs in a different way, but the one, the way that we always do it is... I will be noodling on a, on a musical piece. Alan sometimes will be off in the corner with a scratch pad. He likes to doodle. So he'll doodle stuff and you think he's not tuned in, but he's actually tuned in. And he'll go, uh, grab a mic please. And he'll come up with the melody. We'll always do like either nonsense lyrics or la la la's. So we uh -huh. always put the melody structure in first and then come back and do the lyrics. Yeah, and that was what would impress me with that demo because there was the melody structure just kind of scatting the we're melody. Mapping it. It's mapped. We're mapping it, yeah. but but barring a note here or there or a little bit of phrasing, it was almost identical to the lyrics that were put there. And I got to tell you, and you know this <laughs> as a songwriter, that's very difficult and you stray away from that initial la-la-la sometimes. And my bass player in my band always gets on me about it. He's like, wait a second, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Now there's lyrics there and the melody changed. I'm like, well, I have to get that lyric and he's like you have to change the lyric the, the melody it, it's lost something well you know for us and again like everybody has their own process but for us the melody and the music are integral so uh what we do is we make sure they are locked and yeah barring any like nuanced stuff um the essence of we've always done that the essence of what's there because it fits like a glove it's it's it feels like it's right so we will struggle more on the lyric rather than lose the melody structure that we love. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, there's just, it, this thing's like a tackle box. There's hooks <laughs> every every three seconds here, okay? Uh, that oh, 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 after uh, the first two verse lines, that's a hook, just in and of itself. And it almost harkens to the chorus, which, by the way, you know, the, the verses and the chorus of this song 
are the same progressions just in different keys which that's ge- that's <laughs> genius with this song too and that modulation that ascending part uh the b part yeah. pre-chorus the intro that leads into it and it sets it up so awesome well here in verse one you know this bass tone and the note choices are killer and the interplay between the bass and the keys is awesome here i absolutely love it DX7. <laughs> yeah. DX7, pick bass. Yeah. Yeah, it sound it sounds great. The line Love Thinks It's Here to Stay, that oh 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 ap- right after that, there is an, a guitar and bass wow, that happens again. Again, a hook within the verse. Pre-chorus one, the horns come in here with a great arpeggio guitar part. And this is the again that ascending chord progression that starts the song. This is the pre-chorus. <laughs> That hook again, that now, 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 now on the guitar happens and the horns build to a crescendo and the guitar uh, does that little little hook there. Was that there uh, on the demo? I can't recall from listening to it, that guitar hook. A lot a lot of the guitar hooks were, the horns, of course, were, were an afterthought. After I came home with the demo, I was playing around with it here and on a keyboard horn patch. And I don't know what, something come over me, but I said, I called Jim and I went, what about horns? And then uh, Jim and I wrote the horn part together after the fact. So that that was uh, something that we did uh, after the demo. And we bumped the tempo a fair amount from the demo to the album. Uh, it's got a bit of snap to it. It does. And I, and I love how this song's mixed when the horns are background to the vocal. And then when there's parts and spots where the horns can be featured, how they're brought up. I can really hear that in the mix. And I was unfamiliar with Ed Thacker. He's who mixed the record. Yeah, he did, um, uh, I believe, a lot of stuff with Cyndi Lauper. I think so. I mean, Ed, we knew him. might have been through the record label, but Ed ended up mixing uh, a bunch of stuff for us even after that. But he came to Canada to mix this record. from. He's, I think, originally from New York. Okay, I figured it was maybe another Canadian connection there because I know he's he's uh, worked with Loverboy. He's also worked with Psychedelic Furs, Cindy Lauper, as you mentioned, and Ice House, an awesome Australia band. Yeah, yeah, Ed's great. It, we're, it was so much fun working with him, and that's the first time I've ever, you know, like the whole process is new. Not only from the writing, but when we started recording the record, uh, I was Jim's shadow for the whole record. So uh, I, you know, I just you know, would just hang out as much as I could to watch how, and Randy Staub, you mentioned, he was the tea boy. He was running for tea back in those days. <laughs> so he was, he was a newbie. He, but I'll tell you, we, we, we saw the greatness in him back then. He knew the console better than anyone. Uh, we'd often come in in the middle of the night and, and start working. He hadn't been home and he had the SSL console, like falling asleep. He had that thing down. He, you knew he was set up for great things down the road for sure. He was, even though he was only kind of, you know, assisting. But yeah, I'm not surprised he went on to great, bigger things. 
I, I love stories like that. It reminds me of uh, Jerry Finn, who's no longer with us, but Jerry was Rob Cavallo's right-hand man in the studio. Yeah. And he was just kind of like the, 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 not even the second, he was like the third engineer. And, and they couldn't get mixes right for the first Green Day record, uh, first major label record. And, and Jerry went in and did the mixes and bang, his career took off after that. Yeah. So I, I always love that. It's those guys you don't think are paying attention. They're just, oh, that's just the T guy. No, he, he's got his eyes on everything here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with lots more with Sam Reed of Glass Tiger. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. And now, back to the show. Verse two happens right after pre-chorus one. You could see what I have seen, broken hearts and broken dreams, right into pre-chorus two. Then I wake up and you're not there. Pain finds me everywhere. Oh, but you don't care. <laughs> I don't know what relationship Alan was in at the time. <laughs> you know. Well, uh, that's what I was going to ask. Was this something that was just written or was, was this something uh, personal that was happening with, with, within him? Well, you know, we we were all in that sort of awkward, uh, you know, adult stage where you'd have, you know, girlfriends would come and go, and and their whole tug of, tug of war relationship that that uh, that generate, you know, when you're that age, of course, is normal. And at that point in time, you know, we we were a pretty serious band, but you know, I can think back, and there was every, you know, everybody, you know, was kind of in and out of relationships, you know, uh, you know, pretty much monthly in that. So uh, we were all searching for for that magic combo. And the only thing that was consistent through all of it was the band. <laughs> right. Now, do you recall if, if Jim was involved with Alan with writing this lyric or was this something Alan, you know, Jim was just kind of overseeing or, and Jim just worked on the music. Yeah. Jim, Jim and I did a lot of the music together. Alan, once he gets his teeth in on something, I remember him clicking with it. And actually there is another part of that demo, which I, I'm not sure if I sent you where for a moment, Alan was singing the chorus over the verse. At one point, he was singing that, and it was Jim that said, I think that's a chorus. So, <laughs> so that's the kind of direction you'd get from Jim, because Alan was singing, you know, if you uh, see what I, and he was singing the chorus over the verse and the verse over the chorus, and Valance made him flip them. And that's when it, it just clicked. Right. Which would be easy to do because, again, for the listeners, uh, it, it's the same chord progression, just different keys. Right. And it's how you it's how you get to the chorus yeah. from that ascending part, which is so great. And that's that's the value of having somebody like Jim Valance where, you know, we were young and the process was 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 new. We'd never 
structured anything like that. We were we were writing songs, but they were very much uh, a lot more progressive too. If you listen to the early Glass Tiger, outside of Don't Forget Me and Someday, if you listen to songs we had like Vanishing Tribe and uh, Thin Red Line and what, they're quite different songs. We, as songwriters, we were taking a lead from Valance on how to craft you know, a, a radio, which is what we were sent to do, come up with something really, you know, powerful and that. So we gravitated to him and, and it was his background and knowledge that steered us in the right directions for putting, gluing all those parts together. Jim, Jim was heavily involved in the arrangements, you know? Right. And that's why I asked about the lyrics. Like how hard did he push you guys? Because his bar was, his bar was pretty high at this point. I mean, he, he has a track record of all these hits working with all these artists. You guys are these fresh faced kids that come in. Did he push you? Well, I, I was really nervous before getting there because I was worried like, you know, he's got the big shoes. So is he going to make us sit in a corner and I'll show you lads how to write a song, you know, <laughs> is it going to be like that? And honestly, the first thing we did is we made a cup of tea. We sat down. We said, you like, what are you listening to? He made us welcome from the first second and all of those fears went away. And at that point forward, you forget how many hits this guy's written and you're just a bunch of guys writing songs. That is great. Well, verse two, uh, you get your first harmonies in the song here on the fir- on, on both lines in verse two and horn stabs come in here on the word you seen broken and dreams. Again, another hook that just happened. <laughs> those little, those little flourishes, those little horn stabs really make it. I love the harmonies here too, Sam, because they're subtle. They're not these big, huge harmonies. They're, they're very subtle. You get those O-O-O-O's after each uh, verse line again. At the uh, second line of the verse, that guitar and bass happens before we get into pre-chorus two. Pre-chorus two on the last line on You Don't Care, it's half melody and half harmony. What I mean by that is unlike you and half a don't, it's singing in unison. But then on care, you hear the harmony. I love when things like that happen. How integral was Jim to, to things like that? Uh, Alan, Alan, for instance, I mean, as a singer, he will pull harmonies out of thin air. He's very like, and, and a lot of times that's Alan singing his own harmonies uh, in a lot of cases there. He's just got an internal sense of, of you know, which notes and that. But but Jim and, and, and even myself, even though we're not singers, we'll often play a line, pick notes, and, and we spend a lot of time crafting the harmony structure uh, and and sometimes, you know, you try to avoid those unisons, but sometimes it's just the right thing to do. And, and in that case, it, it just seemed like, you know, and we needed a break. That's the the Everly Brothers verse. That's the one that had the, the matching harmonies. And it it just felt like it needed the unison on that. So it ended up that was what felt right You're in your gut. You know, you, you took the words out of my mouth. It's, it's how does it make you feel? Yeah, it doesn't have to be all all harmonized if it, if it feels good. And that feels great. At the end uh, of that line there, you get a horn build up to that crescendo again. And that guitar hook now, 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 now happens before we get into chorus one, which, you know, this song's moving. But it's a minute and 30 seconds in the song before you get the chorus. But it everything is so familiar about it. Again, that progression <laughs> in the verse that when it hits this chorus, you know, and that ascending part here in pre-chorus uh, two, before we get to the chorus, there's that E seventh chord that then lifts to the F major. It's a, such a such a great lift. 
got to ask you, this part, it's either like low key pads or horn pads, or there's, is it vocal pads that are happening in the chorus or something humming really low there? I don't remember putting any pads in, in this song. I think the only relationship is that when there's a live, like there's a real bass playing as mm-hmm. well as a DX7 bass. Like I'm actually mirroring a lot of the bass parts. So it does kind of thicken up the bottom end. Yes. Then that that's what I'm hearing. Because you can definitely hear that later in the song. It gets louder on that R- outro. I think it's the DX7 yeah. that you're speaking of. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is so great. Well, the lyric in chorus one, don't forget me when I'm gone. My heart would break. I have loved you for so long. It's all I can take. You get harmonies on the first line and on the third line here. And then there's a horn crescendo again that just has this this pick me up, this lift before we get into a four bar reintro. Uh, and along with the guitar, bass, keys, and drums, uh, there's horns playing some great lines and stabs in this chorus. Again, that four bar reintro happens uh, of the verse progression again that leads us into verse three. You take my breath away. Oh, 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 oh. Love thinks it's here to stay. Oh, 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 oh. Still so much for me to do, and I can't stop loving you. Oh, can this be true? This is the same as verse one and pre-chorus one, which if it's not broke, don't fix it. I'm assuming that's it was- exactly it. <laughs> this part's almost like a chorus in and of itself. Why change the lyric? It, and it just felt like it deserved uh, another, like a, a reinforcement um, to, to bring it back again. And I can't remember whether we experimented with an alternate lyric there or not, but I just remember it felt right when it came back, the same lyric. It's great. And I think that, I did that more as a younger songwriter. A lot of times it was maybe laziness or I didn't know what to write about the second or third verse. It was like, oh, just run it again. But it has to be stated that sometimes that's the right move to do. Yeah, and that's a judgment call, obviously. But the one thing you have to allow yourself to do it if it feels that it's right, instead of saying, oh, that can't possibly be right. I got to jam more lyrics into this. You know, this this song is closer to... You know, if you think of a song like Love Me Do or something like that, you don't need to overcomplicate a song. Sometimes the, the straightforward simplicity is what makes it charming and, and memorable. Valance would often talk to us about songs and hooks. And his term was, you know, what can you put in your pocket kind of thing. <laughs> and and that, that's important, you know, and it's important for a hit to, to have that accessible and memorable and sometimes reinforcing it is what makes it memorable because it comes back and and the listener is more like oh here comes this part again so it's not it's not deemed a negative thing or or i copped out on that uh yeah it's it's really the right thing to do yeah and and you said simplicity there's something about just having three chord really two chord progressions and the chorus and the verse are in different keys and you have that ascending part you know it doesn't meander off into some bridge part i mean i've i've broken down songs we've all heard songs that have 
10 different progressions in it. And that's great if it works for that. For this, it is just, it's perfect the way it is. Verse three on the second line, love thinks it's here to stay. A new horn part does some cool swells here on that line. Uh, Again, you get that hook, that on the guitar and bass before it sets up for pre-chorus three. The melody on And I Can't Stop Loving You this time, the melody on that uh, vocal mimics Pain Finds Me Everywhere from pre-chorus two. So I like that it, it picked off that. I love I love little things like that in songs. It, it's little, little subtle things like that take the monotony out of something. If you're going to repeat it and you have these subtleties that that can, uh, you know, kind of evolve so that it, it's, it still kind of takes you to a different spot. Um, you know, melodically, uh, that that sometimes is is again subtle changes, not big ones, but important ones. And I got to ask, I meant to ask you this before: uh, Was Jim involved in getting Ed Thacker to mix the record? How did, how did that happen? Because again, you, you hit a home run here with, with sonically with the mix. I'm sure that what would have happened at that point, a lot of times record labels uh, will often. Of course, when they're they've listened to demos and they get they get pretty close on a record too, and and you're getting close to the end stage of a project, and they'll often then chime in and say, "Okay, who's going to mix it? Who's going to mix it?" So I'm sure that Capitol Records. Now I don't remember if Ed Thacker had done something recently for Capitol Records that they fell in love with, and a lot of times that'll happen where, uh, and even on subsequent albums we did for Capitol Records, you know, they would often give us a list of three mixing engineers that they absolutely love. But a lot of times the labels will love them because they did the last three things they had success with. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm more inclined to me. I don't really care what somebody's done, but are they a good fit? And do they, do they add to the project and take it to the next level is more important than if Thacker mixed a Cindy Lauper record that did well, doesn't necessarily make it a, a perfect fit. But in this case, obviously, you know, he had a flair for this and and immediately, you know, when you start working, uh, you know, we've had other engineers mix things and we just go, mm, no, that's not it. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a great point that you made. You, just because somebody made something else sound good, you know, you don't realize how much it is the artist that shines through. You know, you can't save anything in the mix. We oh, will fix it in the mix. No, no, you can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> typically, typically you can't I'll tell you, Jim Valens as a producer. As a songwriter, he's meticulous, but as a producer, he's even more meticulous. One, the president of uh, Capitol Records in Canada, they're used to like giving you a budget. You go make a record, you come back. And at the end of the process, I don't think any record is either on budget or under budget. It's always (laughs) over, right? And I can remember Dean Cameron saying, because Jim is that meticulous. Oh my God, he is bang on. Like everything is on point. Like I've never had a producer bring me a record that was that was right smack on budget. It's a funny little story. We 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 worked for a little while on that record in a studio in Moran Heights near north of Montreal called Le Studio, and where you know lots of big artists have recorded. And in that studio, they used to have while you're working during the day, they used to have these plates of fresh cookies all over the <laughs> studio. Well, we didn't realize you were walking in and out of the mix room and whatever like that. And everybody's grabbing a cookie, grabbing a cookie. At the end of the two weeks in the studio, we got a cookie bill. <laughs> and the cookie bill 
was like, like, you know, I don't know, a few hundred dollars or something like that. And balance, <laughs> balance, because he hadn't figured on it. He was so upset about it. He called the record company and said, I'll pay for the cookies. I'll pay for the cookies. because <laughs> He didn't want to go over budget. <laughs> he didn't want it to reflect because he had everything right to the point and uh, the cookie was going to push it over. That is awesome. <laughs> chorus, chorus two is the same lyric as chorus one. However, on the second line, ooh, my heart would break. We get a cameo from our friend Brian Adams. It's awesome. And how did this happen? I'm assuming with with Jim and 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 what was your guys' reaction to it? Were, were you uh, welcoming of it, or was it like ah, I don't know? Well, I'll tell you, it it happened very quickly. Like we didn't plan it when we wrote the song. We didn't have the you know the thought process like oh we'll get we'll ask Brian to sing in this part. None of that came into factor. Um, but when the song was finished, Brian used to pop his head in when we were writing with Jim. Brian lived nearby. So he would often pop over and he was listening as we were working with Jim. And a couple of times we'd go over to Brian's house and hear what he was working on. So there is definitely a connection throughout the recording and writing process. Um, but we didn't know at the time Brian was in Toronto for um, our version of the Grammys is the Junos. And he was in town. And that was around the time when we were just wrapping up uh, the overdubs. And I think Jim might have said to Brian, hey, Brian, you know, you know, you like that song. Don't forget me. You should, you should throw your vocal on here. And we popped into a studio called Eastern Sound. It's not there anymore. And uh, on the day he was going to the Junos and literally had a beer in the studio. And he's like, yeah, I'll sing something. And just threw that on there quite haphazardly, really. That's great. Well, I just remember as a kid hearing it, he had an unmistakable voice oh you know it's brian right away for sure yeah yeah and it's just like whoa what is this and it just added another hook and another quirk to an already awesome song i just i i, I love that it, it's cool how that came about well he just sings on that one line there and and uh, he comes back a little later the bridge which really isn't a bridge it's it's another four bar verse progression uh reintro without vocals at the end of it you get that bass and guitar before pre-chorus four, which is the same lyrics as pre-chorus two. Then I wake up and you're not there. Pain finds me everywhere. Oh, but you don't care. And on you don't care, you get that half melody, half harmony thing that happens again. And then the guitar hook. Now, 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 now takes us in to chorus three. And, you know, up to this point, if you could, I know it's been... 37 years now, <laughs> something like that since you recorded this. But what was this process like up to this point in terms of, you know, you, you're thinking of having horns come in and the guitar lines. Was was Jim in there saying, hey, try this, try that? Or did it all just seem to kind of happen uh, naturally? It, it really did happen quite organically. I do know that the horn lines were the last 
overdubbed to go on the song. Um, the guitar lines were pretty much all in place. And Jim, Jim knows the value of those hooks. And one of the one of the things that we struggled with a little bit is that little four bar reintro. We didn't understand it either, <laughs> but we needed it there to do the room. Like if you take that out, you don't get that. Yes. So you need that to set up the guitar uh, slide thing. And and I think it was too much of a hook for Jim. So it's like, wow, screw it. Let's just put the four bars in there. We can do it. You know. So it's funny because when we play it live, we often feel like, why did we just put four bars here? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it it it's it's very strange. But again, you talked about that room yeah. being a hook. You know, a lot of times I'll pick out those things in a song, and, and the guests will be like, they just kind of seem I don't know uh, indifferent to it. I'm glad you really realized. I real I think that's a really important part. All those little hooks I'm calling them within the song. That room is just it's this this thing that uh, had you not done it, it wouldn't have made the song as special as it is. It's all the little bits collectively, yeah. And and Jim certainly uh, the benefit of having Jim uh, to recognize how important those those are the things you put in your pocket, as he would say. You know, like those are your take homes. You know, and and they're accessible. They're not overly complicated, and people will get them in their their in their heads, and then they'll they'll remember. Oh, this is the part that goes. You know, whatever. And I have songs like that too. And it can be even it can be a little snare fill. Like there's a there's a Roxy music song. I wait for the snare fill every time. It's not a big part, but I know it and I wait for it. And and it's just those small subtleties. Yeah, I I'm a huge fan of of small subtleties. I've always say people say what makes a hit, and you really can't define it. It's just I always say it's it's how it makes you feel, and it's the sum of its parts. And and there's just so much little little things in this song that add up to to, to the sum of the whole. It's great. Well, we get our first double chorus in the song. Don't forget me when I'm gone, for heaven's sake. I have loved you for so long. Is loving wrong? And we get a harmony on the first and third lines. Brian Adams sings for heaven's sake, the second line, and he sings the fourth line, is loving wrong, which introduces a new lyric. How did that come about, if you recall? I think, honestly, and Brian didn't write any of the lyrics. That's all Alan. For sure. And Brian, you know, when they got to the studio, they were carving up lines. You do this, you try this. And and it, it just kind of like call answer, like I'll do this line, whatever. So I do know that the song, like I have a version of the song with Alan singing everything on it, you know, which is which is what we was going to be. There's a mix like that. And then and then when Brian came to Eastern Sound, they they carved it up and and picked some of those lines. I do remember Alan fiddling. Like the essence of the song, I would say 98% of the lyric was done within, you know, almost instantly as that song was written on the same day. But then there was subtleties like 
changing a word or two, like what you just mentioned, I think right at the 11th hour, like it was just like, yeah, let's just, I want to change this one, one little word and stuff. Those were kind of late coming lyrics. Yeah, and I think it's great because it just uh, you know keeps reintroducing little things. It's not a lot of information, but it's just a, a subtle difference lets you know you're not in the first chorus. It's great. Right. Well, after his loving wrong, it modulates up a whole step to G. And it's just like, ah, <laughs> can this song get any catchier? So don't forget me when I'm gone. Harmony there. My heart would break. Brian Adams sings that line. I have loved you for so long. We get a harmony there. Is loving wrong? Uh, and that's not Brian on that line. And why? Why not there? Did you not want that to be the last uh, voice you heard? I think, yeah, we, it's, it's time to bring it back to Glass Tiger, you know, uh, and, and give Alan the last say, I would say, you know. Right. Because on the demo, you get more lyrics, you get more vocals, excuse me, right. after, after that part. But here, okay, it modulates back to F major, the original chorus key. And those keyboard pads I mentioned earlier are super loud. And the horns go to a new staccato part that hits really hard. But you're only going back and forth between uh, now the F and the A sharp. It yeah. doesn't go to it doesn't go to the to the E flat there, which it just pads which, through it. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that. That simplicity again. The demo had vocals here. Why not on on the the final? I just I think the obviously the the judgment call was you know everything is glued itself together quite nicely. You know it wasn't needed and 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 also it's quite vocal heavy. You know the song is it's continuous yeah. vocal and I think to to vamp out a little bit, especially the horns doing the 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 staccatos on the end. It lets them breathe a little bit too, and 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 it makes it a little bit of like you know a band a band vibe going on out kind of thing. Well, I've I've heard this song I don't know how many times in my life when I really broke it down under the microscope when it got to that part, the feeling for me was I want to rewind it because I still want to hear more vocal, but the song's ending. I want to hear it again, you know. So I I think it was the right call not to beat that uh, horse anymore. I think yeah, I think another chorus would have been one too many, you know. Uh, uh, it just it doesn't like I can't imagine that now. Uh, of course, after 30 years, you get it's ingrained. But the one thing I do know is, uh, uh, and you were mentioning, and, and, and I'm flipping all the way back to the beginning of the song, but it just uh, made me think of when we did our radio promotion in the U.S. We went through every town, every city to meet all the program directors. It was one of the things that the president of Manhattan Records insisted on because we're a new band, and I remember. And I think it was a big, uh, I don't know if it was Rick Dees or it might have been a guy named Redbeard. And massive, massive, like, yo, you have to talk to this guy kind of thing. And I remember him saying, you know what I like about this song? I come in in the morning and it sets me up. So that, ba da 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 you might as well have trumpets going off. <laughs> and I, I think the disc jockeys enjoyed playing it for the setup. And it, it fit perfectly with their mornings. And a lot of them would say to us, it's like you you designed it for like for radio kind of thing, and that that was one of the things. Of course, I wasn't thinking of that at the time, but that that's a happy accident, you know. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's the perfect pop radio arrangement. Everything about it, it it's so catchy. And this has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you and break this down, Sam. And uh, before we uh, leave, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? What you got going uh, going on, and what the band has coming up? 
Absolutely. And and thank you for such an in-depth interview. I don't think that's ever been done uh, on, on certainly to that. And you've, you're, you're well researched. And, you know, it makes you think, oh, my God, uh, you, know, I, you know, thinking back, you know, that's why I like having those demos, because it reminds me of the, uh, you know, when it was happening and what we were thinking about. And um, but here we are, you know, and, and coming into 2023. And, and all I can say is that we uh, we're we're still a very much active band. You know, we, I, I, with the exception of COVID, of course, we were on a really lovely little, uh, you know, three to five year window where we were just enjoying touring. We had got down into the U.S. We, it's, it's a tough thing coming from Canada. Uh, you need to glue a lot of stuff together to, to, to get, uh, to get down back into the U.S. But we get so many fans writing us through our social media, you know, come to Atlanta, come to Texas, come to Florida, come to, and uh, we're hoping that there'll be more of that in, in the future. We continue to play across Canada and, and into Europe, but we love coming back into the States and, and definitely uh, keep watching for us. And we've got some new stuff. We have a Christmas album. That's our COVID contribution. We have a, we did, we did a Christmas album after 34 years. Was that uh, songs for a winter's night it in is. 2020? Yeah. Okay. It started off as a cover album and we couldn't agree on it. So it, it, we ended up writing all those songs with exception of one, which is a Gordon Lightfoot song. So, so, you know, now that we, we tough that out, I, I'm actually quite proud of it because we'll never do another one. So that's the Christmas album. <laughs> there you go. One and done. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Sam. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Hope you all enjoyed that one. But don't go anywhere. Chris and I have lots of Glass Tiger stuff to talk about in the rap segment. And we also have the band you might not know coming up. We'll be right back with lots more Chris to Makes a Podcast after this quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Half Built Homes, a punk rock band from northern Indiana, consisting of Matt on guitar and vocals, Ryan on bass, and Austin on the drums. Be on the lookout for their upcoming debut album. Here's a snippet of their song, The Ones We Know. It's crazy. Chris and Chris. Chris, as usual, I think that was a great episode. I was really excited that Sam was down to do this episode. I've loved that song since I was a kid as well. I thought it was interesting that he talked about when they first met Jim Valance that he said to them, so what do you guys listen to? And then they actually just like 
put on the music and listen to that. And I've had that experience with producers before too. They're like, well, what albums do you like? And then you listen to them together and you figure out what you like about them. Have you had that experience before? I did. The first producer we worked with, Michael Rosen for Losing Streak. We spent an evening, you know, have, having some beers and, and listening to our favorite rock records and, you know, talking about tones and, ooh, I like that snare tone or I like that tone. And um, yeah, I have had that happen. I, I, I think it's really cool. Hey, is this the first shuffle that we've done on the show? I, I, yeah, I think I think so. Maybe we've done done other ones, but man, this song just it, it gets me moving. It just there's yeah. some there's a swing here to this that's just so so undeniable. Yeah, G- gotta love the shuffle. I didn't even really think about for some reason I didn't think about the fact that this is a shuffle. But of course, and then you have everybody wants to rule the world, one of the ultimate shuffles, and of course, Toto Rosanna, another mm-hmm. amazing shuffle song. It's like, man. We need more shuffle songs. I guess maybe he alluded to the fact you can only have one every once in a while. That's what Jim Valance said. Like, well, yeah, there hasn't been one in a couple of years. There can be one. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great. And that that definitely makes this song what it is. And, and when he mentioned that Tears for Fears track, I immediately went, yeah, I can. It doesn't sound anything like the song except for the feel of it, that 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 shuffle thing. It's, it's really cool. I thought it was cool that he said that, you know, he had the tracks back and he was playing playing around with some keyboard stuff and then he patched in a, a horn sound and then he called Jim was like, what about horns? And I think that's such an important part of this song too that adds so much to this song. You know all about horns and, mm-hmm. and how they can be incorporated in a song and just take it to another level. I think that's one of the main hooks. You were talking about, yeah, that little is a hook and mm-hmm. there's just non-stop hooks but the horns are definitely one of them too yeah the horns are executed masterfully on this they're they're so so good uh the way that the ed thacker who mixed the album you know when they're supporting parts they're back behind the vocal they're still there but when they're by themselves they're pushed up in the mix i can feel that i can hear that it's 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 such a such a great layer of of uh of depth with the horns something that he said that i was like man i can relate to that so much is when you were asking about the lyrics of the song and were they from personal experience or were they just some lyrics? He was talking about how everybody, when you're in your early to mid twenties, everybody in the band was just in and out of relationships. And the only thing that was consistent was the band. And (laughs) I feel like that is like, I think about all these like relationships me and my bandmates had back then. All those people are basically strangers who we dated, but the band stayed consistent. And then you draw inspiration from those experiences. I thought that was cool to hear him say that. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, even beyond love relationships, just friendships of of, male and or female friends that you've had over the years, they, they come and go, but uh, the band, (laughs) you know, hopefully stays, stays a tight unit, even though all, everyone is crumbling around you so to speak yeah it's cool that you can be with your buds i know i've been had that experience you're going through a hard time but hey you're in a van with your buds and you're going to get through it uh i think that's a cool thing to think about for sure Uh, you guys talked about how the song see i think of this song as there's so much going on but like you said it's just a couple different parts there is a straightforward simplicity and sam talked about that being something that made the song charming. And he also talked about how reinforcing a part makes it memorable. When you guys were talking about, oh, 
<laughs> well, how would you say it? Uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. A little, a little bit louder and a little bit worse <laughs> the second time. You know what I'm getting at here? Repeating, yeah. repeating a verse. <laughs> yeah. Well, this uh, verse again. It's it's almost a chorus of itself. The chord progression is the same as the choruses. I can't stress enough. Just the oh, those little things in the verses. When you get to that second verse, why change it? It it was it was perfect as is, and and saying it again is great. Uh, no one's going to mess it up live. They've already heard it once. So they're going to they're sing yeah. it right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, that's one thing to, to be said for repeating a verse is you might be able to sing that verse after the first time you listen to the song. You might be able to sing it by on the first time you're listening to the song. You might be able to sing it by the second time it happens. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's done right, right? And I know the listeners have heard me say a million times, you know, I, I have all this useless knowledge from my childhood, but I read every liner note of every album on the back of records on 45s that I had as a kid. And I got to tell you, I, I had to have some kind of restraint. I said to myself earlier, I'm like, don't like freak out. I had a million things I want to talk about. <laughs> I got to about a, a quarter of what I wanted to say to Sam. We could have talked for two hours, but just the cast of characters that kept popping up. I mentioned Mark LaFrance, a famous backing vocalist session singer, uh, Lisa Dalbello, production assistant, Randy Staub, who was just the tea guy back then, but he ended up being like he mixed i think the last uh or a couple of the big nickelback uh records okay randy did so he's as he's as big as they get right now but it was just player after player i kept seeing here and it was just so cool and then of course the brian adams cameo which just yeah made this song it was undeniable that voice when you heard it having a brian adams cameo now would be a big deal having a brian adams cameo at the time this song came out oh. is like you don't get much bigger than that. That is that is such a a huge like. Oh, is that Brian Adams singing in this song? Like, oh, okay, I guess he was just hanging out, having a beer, singing a few lines on our song. I mean, hey, the song on itself stands on its own, but having Brian Adams sing a little bit on it, it can't hurt, right? That's right. And speaking of useless knowledge, Chris, I can't think of a better place to hear useless knowledge than the after party. Yeah, that's right. And speaking of things that can't hurt, it can't hurt to subscribe to the Krista Makes a Podcast supporting cast. Not only do you support the podcast, but you also get a weekly bonus episode of the After Party Podcast, plus a giant back catalog of it. But most importantly, you support this podcast. We can keep making episodes like this one. We depend on your support. And for those of you who already support us in that way, thank you so much. We super appreciate it. Yeah, and where can they go to sign up for this, Chris? Oh yeah, ChrisDemakes.com. <laughs> in case in case we haven't beat that into your head over the past couple of years, ChrisDemakes.com. It's probably the easiest thing in the world to remember. ChrisDemakes.com is where you can sign up for a few bucks a month. You can support the podcast. And I mean, it's like buying me and Chris each an iced tea and saying, good job, guys. Here's an iced tea. Keep providing me with education and entertainment about songs that I love. That's right. Who doesn't love iced tea? Like, you know. Yeah. I'll Good stuff. A nice, a nice, cool iced tea. And hey, if you haven't joined the Chris Makes a Podcast Facebook group, please do. It's a lot of fun. Over 4,500 active members and counting. It's a great time. So please join us over there if you already haven't. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. Want to thank this week's guest, Mr. Sam Reed from Glass Tiger, for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? 
<laughs> How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.